Bunsen, Dolly, Internal, Why do we need Patrick, Oscar, Isaac, Transplanting. the science shed we're back in the shed it's so nice to be back it's lovely to be back i think welcome everybody you're very welcome in the welcome everyone i it's it's sad that we're having to do the science shed remotely i'm I'm looking forward to the day that we can be reunited in the shed together it won't be long steve i know i know Um, i'm just saying i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to traveling away from salisbury because it gets quite boring in salisbury and mm. not a lot goes down. Have you, feel, have you been to like all of the parks you can been to, well, you know, five times? And there's quite a lot. Done all the things. Quite a lot of countryside nearby, so it's actually lucky because we can off. go. I can go through the trees, you know, to the woodlands. You know, it's very that's very nice. But as a day to day thing, do you, do you like do you feed a, feed a little deer like the beginning of Commando? Exactly. Like just in a clearing, a little beam of light comes down <laughs> into a, a bit like into that. a nice in, into a flowered there meadow. There are a lot of deer around loads of deer everywhere oh, i mean they don't come into the the town center but if you just wander out of the, uh, the middle of salisbury you can't help but see them they're like vermin. we've got we've got like like disgusting foxes that run about in finsbury park so you know like really mangy ones one i saw the other day had almost no fur completely like like had so much mange there was no fur on That's it at all rancid. it was horrible anyway should we go on with doing some science steve yeah <laughs> Steve. Nick, I've been, I've been, um, uh, I've been, um, we're having this discussion. We had an away day, a departmental, a virtual departmental away day, and we're talking about teaching um, in in the lab and in in, in the, the department. And uh, it made me think of like really cool experiments when I was when I was an undergraduate. And I'm trying to bring them in to Cambridge University, which doesn't like to innov- it doesn't like to it doesn't like to kind of change things. It likes it all to be the right. same, right? That's what you'd expect, right? Yeah. It was this great experiment, right? This great experiment we did it, uh, where we were trying to do, um, we were trying to measure the, uh, we were using spectroscopy to measure the um, infrared spectroscopy to measure gases, to measure the types of gases and the specific uh, uh, vibrations in gases. So you can measure measure the vibrations of certain gases using light. great. Well, so imagine, so so let's imagine water for the sake of argument. If you imagine my my hands are oxygen atoms and my face is, sorry, my hands are hydrogen atoms and my face is an oxygen atom. They can vibrate like this in and so out. So Steve's looks like, like he's do- doing a double, a double, I don't want to say. Like a double punch. Like he's got two like chaps like in front of him. And he's a, <laughs> I'm punching a, someone in the left and the right party. of me simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. So anyway, you can... <laughs> I wish these were on video sometimes. Yeah, I get the idea. So basically, <laughs> yeah. the light, you shine light through it and they absorb at different wavelengths depending on the way in which they vibrate the molecule. So you get a yeah, fingerprint exactly. of a particular molecule based on what it absorbs. Indeed, right. indeed. And and one of the things we were trying to do was look at carbon, look at the emission of gases of cars, right? So I was an undergraduate. And the way we wanted to do this, so you get a little cell, which is like a little tube that's had the air sucked out of it, and you have to go and get some exhaust gases. So what I had to do as an undergraduate, this was like a great experiment. Everyone was dressed up, white, you know, the white lab coat, you know, and you had to go into the car park right. of the university, find someone that's getting in their Mate, car. Think and of say, the risk assessments here. Think of the work you're going to have to do. <laughs> You'll never do any science. Well, but then... <laughs> 
I said, look, can we can we can we put can we put a bin bag around your exhaust oh, yep. while your car's yep. on, right? And everyone goes, yep. And then we did this, right? And this this, yeah, is, this, this was back in like the like nineteen the, the good old days. Like, <laughs> I can't do that anymore. This is two thousand and three, um, and like so we did that, and then we did it on like a bus, which obviously has a different output. And then what was really cool, we did it on a leaf blower, right? Right, you know, two stroke and a leaf blower. Well, exactly. And it doesn't have a catalytic converter ah. on it. So when you put the, the, the emissions of a leaf blower into, a, into an infrared spectrometer, you see this huge carbon monoxide peak, wow. which isn't present in cars and obviously in, in, in buses. Um, so anyway, I was trying to pitch this as like a really exciting way to get people interested in vibrational spectroscopy. You know, you can measure really cool things. You can measure, you know, you can model things as rigid rotors. You can estimate things like their rotational constant. You can measure equilibrium bond lengths and all and all these great things just from, and, and it didn't go down well, Nick. It didn't go down well at all. <laughs> That's because they're probably, the, the risk assessment dude's probably there thinking, oh my God. Do you know what we've got one? I went to there. There is one. One of my colleagues was an undergraduate in Cambridge in 1974, and there is still an experiment in the physical chemistry syllabus that is in, that is exactly the same as he did. Wow, we haven't changed. Well, with these still sorts the of things, you just got to do them, Steve. You got to lead, and like you know, it, if you build it, Maybe they ask will for, if you, ask for forgiveness, not if permission. If you build it, they will come. If you build it, just like right. Nick, you've inspired me. I'm going to do it. Should we just get on with some podcasting? Right, yeah. I'm so geeked yeah. In the club. In the club. This bit, and that's the bit that makes it glow blue. Sorry, I can't do the fiddy voice. Oh, Steve, cup of COVID, bit of an interlude. Oh, we're back on a cup of COVID. I like, I like having a cup of COVID in the science shed rather than it being on its own. I quite liked it by itself, but I like it in uh, the shed too. It's good. Yeah. It's. We, I feel like. I feel like we've it's, we kind of like had a little. We got to kind of go through all of the all of the processes of understanding what viruses were and and how they could be, uh, you know, dealt with, and and then we're kind of coming out the other side now. It feels like we are popping out. No one wants to pop out, though, do they? They want to emerge victorious. Emerge victorious is what we want to do. Anyway, so, Steve, I am, as you know, I'm an avid follower of David Davis on Twitter, the Conservative (laughs) MP. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a follower of David Davis. Wasn't he, he was a, was he like, um, he was in the SAS, I think, David Davis. He's got a bit of a interest. I might have made that up. I think he's got some army stuff. He did do a degree in, like, I He's run it, for the Conservative leadership a couple of times and never really quite managed to, you know, galvanise his 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 supporters. No, he's like a right winger, and he's um, he did a degree in like I think it was in like computers and molecular biology at the same time. In like, oh really? Yeah, like years and years ago. Oh, that's cool. That makes me think more of him. Um, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he's famously he was famously described by Dominic Cummins as being as thick as mints. 
and um, very lazy as well. Wow. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I wouldn't really take Dominic Cummins' word for Well, exactly. In, in so some world, people would find yeah. that a compliment. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, he's a big proponent. He's a big drum banger for vitamin D. So, Steve, you'll remember we discussed vitamin D on a previous cup of COVID, didn't we? We did. We were saying that essentially it's, a, it's an important um, uh, vitamin for uh, for your immune system. And if you've got a weakened immune system, you're more inclined to be uh, contract all diseases. But obviously, COVID is one of them. That that's a, Even that's not um, that well established. Vitamin D is very important in bone health. You need it to absorb calcium. There is some evidence yeah. that it may play a role in protecting you from infections, but it's very contentious. And mm. anyway, in the UK, it's advised that people who are deficient take it anyway. And some people um, are very, very drum-bangy about vitamin D. And I think that some of it comes from the fact that people with darker skin, often people um, from the Indian subcontinent, from Africa, have a higher rate of COVID-related mortality. And they are drawing the link and saying, well, actually, what's causing them to die is lack of vitamin D. So for that reason, everyone should be prescribed mega doses of vitamin D. So David Davis has been on this for ages, right? And we discussed this, and I was we were kind yeah. of like, we were making a parallel between this and Linus Pauling, a famous Indeed. chemical Nobel, chemistry Nobel laureate, who went mad and started saying everyone should take mega doses of vitamin C and it, it protected you from dying from anything. And I think, as, as I remember, we basically concluded that it's one of those things that, like, there's no basic downside to taking vitamin D, so you might as well. You know, and and it might might have a positive effect, you know, associated with these things that people are claiming. But there's no downside really to taking a you know reasonable dose. No, but a lot of people are saying that you don't need vaccines; you need you just need vitamin D. And well, it's that's clear. That's big conspiracy. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a conspiracy. And Bill Gates is behind it. And because vitamin D costs nothing, that's the reason that they're stopping it. Ah, uh, fine. Okay. Yeah. So that's the kind money, of because Pfizer want to make money <laughs> rather than just giving out vitamin D. It's, it's what we call enough. a conspiracy yeah. theory, right? Right, anyway, okay. Dave, fair enough. Let's take more of it. That's fine. Anyway, David Davis, I noticed the other day someone had retweeted it. He tweeted a paper and it was showing an 80. He, this is what he said. This is a very, he says this in his tweet, cites the paper and says, this is a very important study on vitamin D and COVID. Its findings are incredibly clear. An 80% reduction in the need for ICU and a 60% reduction in death simply by giving a very cheap and safe therapy, vitamin D. The findings of this study this well-conducted large study should result in this therapy being administered to every COVID patient in every hospital in temperate latitude. Right. And then there's a whole chain of it. Anyway, so I thought this is interesting. So I bookmarked the paper and I thought I'll go back before we talk about it. Finally. Nick, I, lo- so, I love the thought of you see- seeing David Davis' tweet going, what is he saying? Well, I don't believe because, it. Because I thought this is interesting. Someone's done a study on it because we were talking last time that there was a study set up in London where they were mm. going to address exactly this, test this hypothesis, because it is a hypothesis right. that can, Indeed, be, yeah. can be tested, right? Yeah. And maybe may it's be, right. It may be true. It may be true, yeah. In which case, you know, that'd be fantastic. Anyway, yeah. I went back to the preprint. So it's on the Lancet preprint. So, so a preprint is where a paper can be uploaded while the journal is reviewing it. So yeah. it hasn't been peer-reviewed. So it hasn't been vetted, really, by experts. But, Steve, who needs experts, right? Anyway. Exactly. I went back to the page and I found a message there and it says, Dear preprints with the Lancet readers, we have removed this preprint due to concerns about the description of research in this paper. This has led us to initiate an investigation into this study. That's it. Wow. So it's been taken down. So then I... uh, how, How long after it was submitted was it taken down? Well, I don't actually quite know, but it must have been within... Because I looked at this two days ago, which was the 19th. 
And so it was it was less than the week. Okay, fine. So someone someone published a paper that wasn't peer reviewed, but it was kind of just put out on the web as part of the process, and 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 that has been retracted. Yeah. So obviously, I looked into it in a bit more detail, and basically, it's just it's fundamentally a crap paper. It's flawed in pretty much every respect, and there's all kinds of issues with the randomization. Okay. I I, I, I mean. In the edit of this, I'm going to go back to you describing uh, David Davis's tweet. But what, what, what did he say about the paper, if this is flawed in every way? He said, its findings are incredibly clear. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so he said, although the paper's a randomised study, this is a comment. So I looked at all the comments on the preprint server. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't do randomization, and they don't explain how they've done randomization. And even in some of the groups, they were, they were feeding patients... They were withholding vitamin D from some patients, even though they probably should have been prescribed vitamin D because they were deficient, which you would normally do. So they withheld treatment. It was a clinical trial. It wasn't registered. So currently the paper is still in review at the Lancet? Yeah, I think it's under peer review, but they removed it because there were such significant concerns about it that they had to remove it. I mean, mean, we've spoken about this loads of times, but it does say something. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? That if... The claims that you're making are so profound that might lead to a change in, you know, public policy. You could put people at risk, you know. So say for, say for what they're saying is true, there's absolutely no reason why literally everyone on the, that they wouldn't start prescribing vitamin D to everyone on the NHS. Yeah. Um, so actually it's doing, you know, so, so normally a preprint does more good than harm. It gets it out into the world. It gets people knowing that you're, it puts your name out there and, the, and so people know the work you've been working on. But actually here you're saying the opposite. It's actually the fact it's being out in the world uh, prior to being reviewed by experts means that the kind of net, that's a net negative because people might be, might be acting on that when it hasn't been proven. I think what's going on here is that usually if you put, a, if you put your paper into the public domain before it's been peer reviewed, mm-hmm. You're letting everyone review it for you, right? So, yeah. you know, if you've made a massive clangor, you have to fess up to the clangor. I mean, if you get it peer-reviewed, two or three people will look for any clangors, and it's kind of like a quality control step. Yeah, it's another way of doing quality control, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a, sm- a small number of highly qualified people will look at it, or a large number of maybe slightly less qualified people, on average, will look at it. Yeah, I generally, both, with ones, valid. when I'm senior author, I normally put them on uh, a preprint um, server. Um, just because I think that's a reasonable thing to do, you know. Yeah, me too. Um, because it's transparent, everyone can see what you do. But uh, and it also saves all the hassle with resubmitting to different journals because they can just take it off. The... Anyway, that's a separate point. But in this case, because it's such a big public thing, that as soon as they put it out there on vitamin D, it gets picked up by all of the um, well, by David Davis, and then a whole bunch of conspiracy theories. The Daily Mail, and then blah blah blah, and yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I didn't go into too many details about... There's a lot of technical details about why there are issues with it. I can't rule out that it could be absolutely correct, of course. So mm. the, the the conclusions could be correct, but there are significant flaws with how they ran it. It's not a, basically, it's not a double-blinded controlled study. It's not even a but, controlled but they, study. But they claimed it was? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fake news, man. Fake totally was double-blinded. <laughs> It's fake news if you think it's not. Yeah, I mean, retract. there's a website called Retraction Watch, and you can go to Retraction Watch, and they've got a little article on it. And they go through all of these different um, details about why there's a problem um, with the paper. It's called, the paper's called um, Calcifidial Treatment and COVID-19 Related Outcomes. That's the name of the paper. Mm-hmm. And 
you can see on that uh, on that site all of the different comments that have been made about why there's a there's, there's significant issues with it but you know the jury's still out on vitamin d and covid so we should we should wait and see because it may actually have um, a significant effect maybe david davis is right nick we, maybe he's yeah. got it you know maybe he is and fair play to him if he is but he's peddling you know he's not he's not dealing with it in a responsible way extremely clear he's results a, he's a politician <laughs> And and that's his, uh, you know, he's got a he's got a very set idea about what's going on. He's already decided, and so he's just going to keep banging the drum. Steve, what have you been doing? I've been watching some TED Talks. You hate mm. TEDs, don't you? You love TED Talks, but you you're hate the kind TEDs. of you're a bit into the kind of like I like the inspirational wacky. wacky. I've been watching a program called Devs recently, which I don't is know what like that is. Devs is like a thing about a Californian startup, and they're all kind of cool science cats, IT cats, mm. and I can imagine them doing TED Talks. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So I'm quite a fan of TED Talks. I know you don't like them too much because you basically don't like people showing off, do you? And I do like the occasional TED Talk. This I just really... find it, it makes me cringe slightly. I, I, I prefer mean, so, my so, talks so, to be dry, open I, university, I, chat I with agree. a beard, woman with a moustache, that sort of thing. <laughs> in general, I agree. Um, you know, sometimes they can be a bit bombastic, can't they? They're essentially they're being you know d- divisive for the sake of it. Um, there's a really good one. Right by um, a professor called Temple Grandin is her name. She's um, she's a, um, a faculty member of the animal sciences um, at Colorado State University. Temple Grandin. Have you ever heard of her? No, but it sounds like a beauty spot in Cambodia or something. <laughs> Come and see the wonders of Temple Grandin. No, um, so she's a really interesting person. So she's um, she's an academic, but she's uh, she has autism. Oh, um, I know that. I think I know who you're going to talk about. Uh, I think I'm aware of this, this person. Yeah. Yeah. Crack okay. on. Yeah. Uh, it may well, not be the same person. Well, one of the things um, she, she gives this really interesting talk, uh, and then I, then I kind of got sucked down a, a rabbit hole about various different interviews with her, and just talking about you know autism, and um, she has this kind of real affinity with um, animal welfare, and that's where the, the majority of her um, research goes. Um, but she tries to kind of highlight the kind of issues associated with autism and she's tried to kind of like use that use you know her autism as a kind of positive to be able to kind of focus academic research in a way that people without autism may, may perhaps couldn't so is she quite high functioning because you get i mean when you think Absolutely. of autism there's a really big spectrum and you know most people who well people my age or your age perhaps think of like rain man you know dustin hoffman 
you know, and a lot of people with autism Absolutely. Would so, struggle so she's, to function. I mean, she's a university professor. She's in a she's in her seventies now, so she's she's relatively old. But you know, she's actually one of the first individuals on the autism spectrum to document um, the insights that she gained from her personal experience of autism. So, so she's yes. actually one of the first people to be able to, you know, try and explain it. And, and she uses this really good analogy, and I wanted to kind of run it past you. So so she says, okay, imagine a church. So I'm think about church. One. I'm picturing one. The now, church is called now, Temple Grandin. <laughs> it's a large, spacious. So, so, what do you think about when I say a picture of church? What, what's the what's the visualization in your mind? It's a um, British Norman church with a spire, with a graveyard, and some buttresses around it. And are you thinking about like a real life, like bricks and mortar, or are you thinking about like a child's drawing of almost like a little house, little pentag, like you know, like a five sided house with a chimney and a steeple on it? Like, how are you visualizing it? No, I'm picturing like a stone one, like near okay. here, like the Wiltshire countryside. You know, I just one, one just particular one popped into my head okay so um you know she's one of the that, that that's good evidence that you're probably not autistic nick yeah. um so <laughs> one of the things that uh that she says and this is quite common in autism um is that it's very difficult for a lot of people with autism to kind of have a level of abstraction so when they imagine a church what they have to do i say they here this is an autistic community in general they have to measure a specific church so it's not just like a general one in wiltshire it's the parish of st whatever in you know bratton in wiltshire you know, it has to be a specific church it's very difficult to measure just a generic church and actually in general what you find some people quite often they all imagine just a diagram of a church like a child might draw you know, it's very easy for people without autism to kind of abstract very readily really easy um and one of those things what so okay so why is that that important well this is one of the reasons that sometimes autistic people can really struggle with um um the spatial organization of things you know for instance if people um if you walk into a kitchen and someone's moved a chair for the sake of argument to an autistic person that appears like a different kitchen and that's why it's so it's so so uh, uh, disquieting to be able to walk into a different kitchen because it's very difficult for them to abstract that a kitchen is just a place with a chair in and a chair can move I around. See. So it's about generalisation. So you, you you tend to think this particular kitchen has these chairs in these places, and if you move one chair, it kind of just is not the same kitchen, if you like. That, exactly. That, that kind of just messes with you. And, and actually, what some of temp Temple's work. Uh, was around actually they sort of saw very similar behavior in animals in particular cattle um and so for instance if, if cattle are moving around and they see something that disturbs their their vision of the world so quite often there's a quite a lot of uh, she did some experiments a lot with like uh, um coke can so you have all these cattle moving in a line and if they see a coke can on the floor they stop whoa this and they, remind, this maria tells me that because maria likes she you know maria's from sweden she had hmm. she would brought up riding horses in the north of Sweden and apparently horses are quite similar if they see a crisp packet by yep. the side of a path freak them out like stop don't want to go past it it weirds them out yeah no exactly well this is exactly the thing and, and actually the, the reason that, that this particular academic got involved in some of this research was that she kind of felt this um, association with animals in the way that that's exactly how apparently how autistic people you know experience the world yeah. Um, and so she she felt on some level that she could understand cattle in a way that, you know, perhaps you and I couldn't because, you know, we're not autistic. And so she's been massively influential in the designing of abattoirs and, and slaughterhouses in, in oh, the really? US. So, I mean, so I take it she's not a vegetarian then. <laughs> you mean she, she sees no, she's it? not. Um, uh, well, actually, I don't know whether she is, to be honest. Maybe she is. Maybe, yeah. maybe she's just really pragmatic about it. 
Yeah, I mean, she's been she's kind of considered one of the most. You know, she was she was voted, I think, one of the most hundred most influential people in the world. She's completely changed this industry. Uh, the kind of meat industry and the farming industry based upon some of the insights she does. She, she's redesigned all these avatars that have kind of continual, continuous spirals. So right. the cows are way less stressed uh, when they're going through, you know, to slaughter, unfortunately. Um, but she's been kind of incredibly, like, it's, um, it's, it's a really, really kind of interesting TED Talk. I would recommend everyone kind of go and watch it. But actually, it's incredible to have somebody, you know, she's been a big proponent of, uh, you know, so-called neurodiversity, you know, the, you know, the, the diversity of, of, of thought is really important. Uh, and having people that think differently is really valuable in in academia. It's just really interesting, really inspirational person, and um, well worth um, well worth watching. Uh, we'll we'll post it along um, uh, with this with this. Yeah, podcast. that sounds very... sounds really interesting. I mean, other people who I was just thinking, I, I Chris Packham of the TV has right. Asperger's. Apparently, is that right? I didn't know that. I think so. Yeah, and a lot of um, scientists from. I mean, everyone speculates because it was obviously mis, uh, not diagnosed back in history. But you know, Einstein was is thought to have been um, autistic to some degree. People yeah. like Paul Dirac as well, just based on their their character traits and how they interacted with the world. So um, there's probably quite a lot of people who do have some form of autism who are um, very high functioning and high achieving people and. Absolutely, um, and actually, roles. Yeah. So, so Tem- Temple, just just to finish with a quote from her, really, um, you know, she's been a big, combo- uh, uh, um, you know, uh, advocate for kind of animal rights, and she she's got a great quote. She said, "I think uh, I think using animals for food is the eth- is is an ethical thing to do, but we've got to do it right. We've got to give animals a decent life, and we've got to give them a painless death. We owe animals, we owe the animals respect, and and it's only through this." you know this uh this neurological condition that that she that she feels that she can kind of uh she can do a better job at engaging with this and it's been kind of massively transformational particularly in the us but all over the world Most foul. Murder most murder. foul. Murder. What what's happening, Nick? Who's been murdered? Foxgloves. Fox I was gloves. listening to an album okay. by a band the other day, the Decemberists. You may remember them, and this is several years yeah. ago. They did a proggy album um called The Hazards of Love, which is named after like some folk album from the sixties. But anyway, it's like a weird album about some forest dwelling people. There's a shape shifting man. There's like a strange earth mother. There's like kind of, you know, it's a weird thing. And it's like based on English folk mythology. Now in the, in the, um, in the, the story, the, the concept. You must, you must be loving in it. The story. Yeah, like... I do like that. Album. It's a sort of album. You never listen to one track. You just listen to the whole album. All the way through. Uh, that's how I like to listen to albums. Good I man. You know... I thought you were a part of the Spotify generation. No, well, I am, but I just, but I always listen to the whole album. That's what I, it annoys me that, that when people don't. Yeah. I think it's very important to do. Right. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so this this yeah. album. Anyway, there's a there's there's a part in it where one of the characters murders his children. Infanticide. Not very nice. Okay. And one of them he murders by feeding feeding them foxglove. 
It got okay. me thinking about foxglove, and I thought, oh, I wonder whether there's been many... Cause are they poisonous? They're poisonous, they are. Do you know what the Latin name for foxglove is? I've got no idea. Digitalis. Digitalis, digitalis is the genus. It comes from, apparently, it, come, it comes from the Latin digit, finger, because the German name for foxglove is something to do with the fingers. And they look like somewhere you, the fingers of a glove, basically. Do you know what the direct translation of a squirrel is in no. German? Acorn horn. <laughs> acorn horn why an acorn horn I, I think it's the shape of the tail looks like a horn with an acorn on the end what the hell the... and they, the coincidence yeah. they also eat acorns I think I think that's I mean, uh, do you know what I don't it works know works on the, a couple of levels that's what you're saying but, but, it def, but it definitely is if you directly translate the word for squirrel into German it's acorn wow okay thanks for that nugget of information <laughs> Yeah, this, yeah. Sorry, you, you're saying. Anyway, foxglove. It's a glove. The poisonous yeah, digitalis, foxglove. like a finger. Yeah. You stick your finger. You imagine they're fingers of gloves. Yeah. That's what the Germans think of them. You stick your fingers in them, and so they're like the fingers. Digitalis, okay. digit finger. Anyway, they have been. You know, foxgloves have been used to murder people for years. How, how, um, how poisonous are they? How, like, what do you have to mush up one foxglove? Oh, we'll, fox I think glove? we'll come to a bit of that as we go through the story. Okay. But yeah, you have to have Fair quite enough. a few leaves before it kill you, kill you. Oh, it's leaves. It's not the flower. It's the leaves people people will use. Okay. Yeah, that's where the um, the active compound is. But they've been used for years. Do you know how many times Agatha Christie has used the foxglove as a mechanism of murder in her books? Uh, I don't know, um, but I'm going to go three. She's used them in six times. So in her books, there have been... It's very common. (laughs) In her... Very common way of death. In her books, there have been 83 poisonings, and Foxlove's been used six times. First time in Appointment with Death, published in 1937. Right. Crikey. There's loads of other ones as well. Six times... Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, sometimes you just got to, you know, reuse old content. We do it all the time. Anyway, I got that. I got. And you can understand how Agatha Christie has to. <laughs> I got that um, from a 1983 paper in the Journal of American College of Cardiologists by a chap called Howard Birchall. Digital, digitalist poisoning, historical and forensic aspects. Really interesting paper, but he's cited. He knows he must have gone through Agatha Christie's books and found yeah. out because he doesn't cite a reference there so i'm assuming he's gone to the original source to find out how many times there has been a poisoning using foxglove in all of her many books oh so he's just read he's, the he must have gone through them, them all and counted <laughs> okay well there's got to be an original source somewhere absolutely, you always have to go back absolutely. <laughs> like... good man anyway there's more recent tales than this i came across one which is to, it's actually called the fox. Has anyone actually ever been poisoned by, like, not just in, in literature? Oh, yeah, poisoned to death. Loads of examples. Ah. And in fact, there's a serial killer. I forget his name now. I don't have it to hand. But um, this chap killed about 50-odd people in, in the early 2000s, some of them with insulin and some of them with, um, with foxglove. Digito- well, it was actually digoxin. So it's the drug derived from foxglove. He wasn't using leaves himself. He was using the right. drug. He was actually buying. He the was drug. buying the drug. Well, he was uh, working. In a, he was a hospital worker. Occasionally, you get these mad nurses or medical staff who just mm. kill patients for fun. There was one in the UK with insulin not so long ago as well. I don't know if you remember that. Mm. But there's a there's a weird story as well from like the late nineties. Um, a family called they're they're a, a Romani family called the Teen Bimbos. <laughs> Teen. Okay. So they're not they're, they're not Teen Bimbos. The name is T E N E hyphen Bimbo. That's what they're called. Their their surname is. That. Yeah, exactly. 
they're, they're so it's like John. They're Team called Bimbo. the Team Bimbo Clan. <laughs> so, right, it's okay. believed that they killed six six men, two women between the years of 1984 and 1993. And basically, what they did was they just kind of. Um, I don't want to spend a huge amount of time telling you all of the different cases, but basically they they became these um, gypsy women. They became friendly with very old men um, and sort of entered into relationships with them. And then later on, they they ended up dying, basically. So um, one of them got prosecuted for manslaughter in uh, in about uh, 2000. They went to trial, but it was going on a really long mm-hmm. time. But anyway, it's been used for many, many years interesting i mean this poisoning to... so how, how, how does it work how does the poison work what that's a good do? question so um so the, there's there's two compounds we know about now in the fox club um there's this one called um dig, digitoxin which is kind of like it's like cholesterol stuck to a, a sugar because they're called they're mm-hmm. called cl- cardiac glycosides so they're kind of um i'll show you we'll, we'll share a picture heart sugars yeah exactly yeah yeah so they're kind of um, big organic molecules. They've basically got a steroid mm. part and then a sugar part. So they're sort of these big. And, and why does that? Why does that kill so you? So what they do is they um, they inhibit a particular transporter in muscles. So in your muscles, okay. you've got a, um, a a pump called the uh, sodium potassium pump. Right. Now, and basically, what that what the digitoxin does is it inhibits that particular pump, and the net result is it disrupts the salt balance inside your cell. So another pump starts to uh, stop calcium being pumped out of your your cells. So basically, you get an accumulation of calcium in your muscle cells, and that has okay. a bunch of different effects. But the primary one, and the reason it's used medically, is it's it acts on your heart and it makes your heart beat more strongly and more slowly. Right. The history of this is okay. really interesting, right? So you go back to, in the history to all 1700s, 1785, um, a particular um, surgeon working in Shropshire at the at the time. So, sorry, digitoxin is used medically, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's still for, used. To, it's used rarely. To inju- Digi- digoxin okay. and digitoxin are two closely related okay. compounds. They're used so they're, they're actually used as drugs to, to do that to your heart intentionally? Yeah, sometimes. they're generally used for cardiac arrhythmia. So if your heart's beating okay. erratically, yeah. they can help your heart coordinate and beat more and more coordinated and more regular regular method. Anyway, the chap who discovered this was called William Withering. So um, he wrote a treatise on it in 1785, which I had a read of. You can find it online. It's did. cracking. And it's quite funny because in these old texts, you know when all the S's are replaced by F's? F's, yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is, this is the opening gambit of the preface. Uh, yeah. After being frequently urged to write upon this subject, and often declining to do it from apprehension of my own ability, I am at length compelled to take up the pen. However unqualified, I may still feel myself for the task. All right. Great opening. Modest. I like He's modest, list. isn't he? Yeah. Very modest. Yeah. He whacks in all of that self-deprecation, Imagine... two or three sub-clauses of self-deprecation before, before you even he get reaches, going. I feel myself able to do the tap. Mm-hmm. But it's a really interesting book. And he goes through loads of case studies, like how he found it and what it has. And initially, what this was used was a disease called dropsy. Obviously, in mm-hmm. those days, people just saw the out, you know, what, what, you got the symptoms and signs of a disease you didn't really know what caused it and dropsy basically is swelling it's edema 
it's having a swollen belly or swollen legs. And that's often the result of um, cardiac failure. So if your heart's starting to fail, it can't pump as much blood, blood around the body and the blood pools, basically. And you get mm-hmm. fluid retention in your legs. And there was he found this um, this local lady in Shropshire, an old lady. Um, let me just find this for a second. So he found something from an old lady. He said it was. I was told that it had long been kept secret. Shall I go back into his voice? I'll just crack on and it was. I was. <laughs> no, I like the voice. I was told. Back, back into the voice. I feel like I've been transported back to seventeen eighty. I'm not doing that F for S's thing. It's ridiculous. I was told it had long been kept a secret by an old woman in Shropshire who had sometimes made cures after the more peculiar practitioners had failed. Regular, sorry, not peculiar. I was informed also that the effects produced were violent vomiting and purging, for the diuretic effects seemed to have been overlooked. It had 20 herbs in it, but it wasn't difficult to work out that the active ingredient was foxglove. <laughs> right, so, um, yeah, so he goes on at all nice. these case studies, and he just he recounts sort of instances of where there were people who had um, particular, you know, swellings in the body, and basically what happened when they took foxglove, they started to urinate more. Basically, because the blood's mm-hmm. been pumped through the kidneys much more, they can get rid of all of this fluid. So it seemed to work really, really well. And actually, Charles Darwin knew about this. Not the Charles Darwin, but Charles Darwin's uncle. There's another confusing also called called Charles, Charles Darwin. I mean, that's going to be a bad conversation to have at a dinner party back back in, you know, 1896, isn't it? <laughs> like, like, oh, I liked your book. No, like... <laughs> well, yeah, this was a good 50 years before Charles Darwin did anything. So I don't know. Uh, OK, but good. they're all Happy days. So, so Erasmus Darwin was Charles Darwin's grandfather and he had a, a, a load of different children. And one of them was called Charles Darwin. And one of them was Charles Darwin, the, our Charles Darwin's fathers. So but he died at medical school, but he published on it as well. So there were a lot of people investigating right. Tidjoxin digitoxin back in the day but um yeah i just thought that was kind of fascinating it's just because it grows in england it grows in england yeah it doesn't in europe it doesn't grow in the u.s it's now cultivated in the u.s because it was used medically so is that yeah okay so people were growing it as a crop people started to grow it in the u.s herbalists and things like that yeah exactly to cure heart failure so it wasn't until like the 1900s that people worked out that it was having its effects through the heart Right. But, so it's so, okay. So obviously, if you take too much of it, it can mess up your heart, but it can be used in smaller doses to cure heart arrhythmia. Exactly. Right? Yeah. If you take too much of it, yeah. it causes re- nausea, vomiting, makes you feel really sick. It slows your heart right down and your body tries to, com- tries to um, compensate for that by speeding the heart up. So, um, right. you know, there was one uh, there was one kind of description of it, you know, quite horrible descriptions it talks about a chap this is a doctor from Salern. he was feeding it to his turkeys and t- i don't know why he's feeding it to turkeys but his turkeys died really horrible deaths another case I love here the thought of these because because it's always probably it's not that he, he sp- specifically had turkeys to do the experiments on it's just probably he had a turkey knocking about in his garden so. and he's like i wonder what happens yeah. here's one this is another this is a lady here in one cafe, that means case with F. <laughs> in one, one in cafe. one case, in one cafe. I love the thought of just walking down the Eastern Road. In one all cafe, these cafes. Uh, the urine began to flow freely, so that's like success. The urine is flowing mm. freely. On the second day, on the third day, the swelling began to subside. The dropsy is being cured. The dose was then increased more than quadruple in 24 hours. <gasps> Warning bells. On the fifth day, sickness came on and much purging. But urine increased 
though the pulse sank to 50. On the seventh day, a quadruple dose was prescribed every three hours. Unsurprisingly, the patient died on the 16th day. <laughs> the heart rate rapidly increased to 100 and the patient dropped dead. So, yeah, I think in those days they hadn't really... And actually, digitoxin is not really used anymore. Digitoxin is not used so much because it has a really bad therapeutic index. And what that means is that there's a small window where it's therapeutic. Right. And if you go over that, it, the toxic effects outweigh any benefit you get. You know, you want most drugs to have a really, really low therapeutic, well, really wide therapeutic window. And this one has a particular narrow Yeah, so you can't one. go wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you get all the good you're stuff. You're walking on a tightrope with yeah. your foxgloves, which is why it's a good poison to kill people with. Why do we need Petrick, Oscar, Isaac, transplanting? Oh, Steve, that was a good one. That one. Yeah. I got a follow up to the, uh, you know, I was talking about the stories of of the troubles and tribulations of trying to do new experiments and chasing cars. Yeah. Summarized by a joke. Do you want to hear it? Mm. How many Cambridge academics does it take to change a light bulb? Now, Steve, don't be too rude about your colleagues. I don't know the answer. How many light bulb, How many Cambridge academics does it take to change a light bulb? Change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sending anyway. that one straight to the dean of chemistry. <laughs> oh well, it was nice. It was a nice run while it lasted. Um, no. Anyway, that was great. So um, yeah, guys. Nice to have you with us today, Shedling. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can you can message us via Twitter. Steve is... I'm at Steve the Chemist. And I'm at the Evans Lab. Do please share, subscribe, like, subscribe. all that business. If and you guys have any questions or would like to address anything, say what's good, what's bad. We're always happy to hear it, specifically if you want to insult Nick as well. I'm always more than happy to... Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to be insulted as well. I'll get on my knees and you can insult the hell out of me. <laughs> Happy days. All right. But if but until then, uh, we're, we're hopefully everyone's enjoying season four of uh, the podcast. There's more to come. We're going to try and do these every two weeks as we have been doing um, and uh, get back into a bit of a rhythm after our cup of COVID uh, session. Nick, what do you think about that? I think that sounds great, Stephen. All right. All right. Well, then uh, we'll speak to everyone next time. All right. Have a good one, Bye. guys. Bye.